Yes, welcome finally to Morals and Markets. Now the topic tonight is, well, this was my title, and I confess to wanting to be a little provocative here. So it's why America can't win wars anymore. And I feel a little guilty about it because I think I really mean the U.S., meaning the actual leaders of the country. I'm not sure the citizens of the country that themselves aren't willing to win wars, but even that's changing. So here's what I thought I would do. And by the way, I have two great special guests to join me, uh, one of which I think knows way more about foreign policy and U.S. history than I do. So that's another reason I wanted him on. So I'll, I'll introduce them briefly. But I just wanted to say that specifically when I say what wars am I talking about, really the last five since World War II. So I'm including in here Korea, Vietnam, even the Gulf War of 1991, and then the last two, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. Now, why do I say not winning? Um, in Korea, Vietnam, and the Gulf War, the instigators remained in power afterwards. So, I mean, we did go in there and we did fight them, but we basically pushed them back over the original line they passed without exterminating them, without removing them. Um, the last two, you could say the same thing. I mean, Afghanistan, the Taliban is not only in power as they were pre-9-11, but probably more powerful, more ubiquitous, certainly better armed because we left them $83 billion worth of U.S. war material. Iraq was turned into another Iran, in effect. Iraq is now more, sector has been for the last five years, more theocratic uh, than it was pre 9-11. Iran and Iraq were mortal enemies for about eight years during the Reagan years. They were at war and we were backing, pretty much backing Saddam against Iran. Uh, but that whole U.S. involvement in Iraq has led to them being happy allies now. So, I, I, you know, I just think it's fair enough for me to say th these are not winning uh, engagements. Now, the background of this, of course, is we won the Cold War. So I don't want to say no wars were won. You could, it, I mean, it was quite an accomplishment to uh, get rid of the Soviet Union and all its satellites. But that could have been seen as a kind of joint effort of Reagan naming the moral enemy for once and not engaging in appeasement or detente like Nixon and Ford had done. Uh, combined with Gorbachev's willingness not to roll tanks into places when there was uprisings again. So I give Reagan and, to a lesser extent, Gorbachev credit for that. So I just wanted to get that on the record for standpoint of what does Solzman mean by not winning wars. But I'm, I'm open to debate on that uh, tonight. And my quick answer to why we can't, the answer is why, you know, after weather. I think America has lost its pride. It's not a proud country anymore, number one. Number two, it's lost its self-confidence. It's not a confident country anymore. And again, I think this is largely the leadership, both political and military. And this is decades of philosophy. This is decades of philosophy even permeating the foreign policy establishment and the military academies. Uh, they don't see America as a moral beacon anymore. They don't see America as the face of freedom anymore. Um, the view is, you know, you've heard it all before, America is racist, America is xenophobic, America is sexist, America is Islamophobic, 
imperialistic, colonialistic, all that kind of thing. It, it disarms in a way morally the country's leaders. And therefore you see them losing to really inferior uh, rivals. And so you get this oddity of the first half of the last century, Democrat presidents beating really formidable opponents like Germany and Japan. And then fast forward to recently, you've got Republican government, presumably more hawkish, presumably more American, losing to cave dwellers. <laughs> shocking, kind of shocking. Uh, so um, I thought uh, before I do these introductions, it might structure the discussion tonight. Uh, you don't have to go by this, anyone, but uh, something like what's behind foreign policy and then what's behind military strategy. And so, uh, and, and I, I kind of think of foreign policy as the mind and the military strategy as the body. And so the mind-body integration is important and maybe the problem is there's a mind-body split in America, but it also could be the strategy is terrible because the uh, foreign policy is terrible. You can go that route as well. <clears throat> I think another underlying theme might be just the morality of egoism versus altruism. Egoism is the self-interest approach. And we could say, well, the equivalent in foreign policy is America's national self-interest should be primary, but you still have to define what that is. Something like America first, which is the Trump approach, kind of reflects that. It's the idea that America, not America exclusively, not America at the expense of others, not a Nietzschean foreign policy, but also not a sacrificial one either. If it's America first, that does sound more egoistic. And maybe that's why he was hated so much because that's a more egoistic stance uh, in the world. But it reflects a right to self-defense, right? If you have a right to self-defense, you also have a right to national defense. Uh, but not national offense, not, I don't think imperialism or colonialism, that's the false choice, right? We might also talk about the false choice you see in the libertarian arguments, passivism and isolationism versus imperialism and colonialism. So it's easy for those two to be counterposed and easily uh, dismissed. Um, nation building, uh, a whole bunch of other things. Uh, let me turn now though to introducing the guests. And uh, Ron Jasinski, I've known Rob, when did we first meet? My gosh, I think it might have been at the University of Chicago in the late yeah, when I was the student. 80s. Late, Correct. We're dating ourselves, something like that. And Rob Trzynski is um, a, a multi-decade objectivist, an enormously prolific author. Um, for many years, I think the dates I found, Rob, I forgot these dates. 1996, well into the mid-2000 was editor, publisher, owner of The Intellectual Activist, which had been started by Peter Schwartz back in 1979. And then since then, the Trzinski Letter. So all you have to do is go www.trzinskiletter.com. You see great stuff. Been a columnist for The Federalist, for Bulwark, for Discourse. He's got a new program called Symposium. You'll find that as well. Author, a couple of years ago, author of a great book called so who is John Galt anyway? It's a guide mm -hmm. to a guide to reading Atlas Shrugged. It's fabulous. Um, 
uh, more recently an essay, this will be controversial, the case for nation building. For nation building, not against nation building. So welcome, Rob. It's going to be great to hear from you. Uh, by the way, if you want more Trzinski, he was on, uh, I think, September 1. You can go onto the Atlas site and see him being interviewed by uh, Atlas's CEO, Jennifer Grossman. And then I think you're also going to be on September 30, Rob, on the medium called Clubhouse, which is all audio. But it's, uh, uh, so it's audio, but it's like you're on a conference call. It's really fabulous. So Look on the site and look to sign up for that now. Also, Dr. David Kelly, who founded the Atlas Society, so so glad you could be here. David and I had a conversation the other night, and even though this is somewhat of a grim story, we were laughing our heads off, actually, at certain absurd aspects of this. <laughs> so I don't want to be totally dark tonight. Maybe there's some positive aspects to this. But, um, David, I can't wait to hear from you. Da David wrote a letter to... Uh, TAS members recently identifying three basic aspects of this whole issue and problem, pragmatism, democracy. And I think the third one was culture and philosophy. So I would love for you to elaborate on that, David. Um, so welcome. Um, David, actually, I, I also found just li literally recently uh, had done in 2000, was it 2004, David, a, a two, two and a half hour lecture on uh, oh, the history of just the ideas of Islam and the rise and fall of that culture. And it was a fairly advanced culture at some point um, relative to Christianity, and then it switched. So that's a deeper philosophic dive into the whole thing. Um, but I thought I would just start with... Um, David, if you want to just start with your themes, and then we'll go to Rob, and I'm going to kind of back off for now, and I'd love to hear from you guys. So, so David, go ahead if that's okay, and then Rob. Oh, well, thank you. I, I consider myself kind of a junior partner in this discussion. You and Rob have been writing about this uh, lately, and um, I sent a letter, uh, as you mentioned, to our donors referencing some some of the lessons main lessons from 9-11 and uh but, but the main point of it was to send links including to that um that lecture on islam that i gave uh, lectures uh, at our summer seminar in 2004 yeah. and we that we published on um <clears throat> uh on our site the audio and the slideshow um and i it i'm very proud of that um, you know, and, and it confirmed a sense that Islam, like medieval Christianity, was a great civilization in many ways, despite the religion, despite the, the faith element. Um, there were rational philosophers uh, of great achievement, and it's sad that Unlike the West, where Aquinas brought Aristotle back, and that led to um, our, our Western Enlightenment, um, in Islam, the the mystics, uh, the witch doctor and Attila combination, which I locate with a guy named Al Ghazali, uh, was was the dominant voice, and so it it just declined. And there was no, um, there was no 
recovering and, and until they began worrying about their um, vast inferiority to the West. They were they were used to a cultural history of being the dominant civilization, the most advanced civilization in the world. And suddenly, you know, um, around in the 1800s, uh, they were um, they were vastly inferior. So anyway, there's I, I don't want to go on too much. There's there's a, a rich long history here for those who are interested. And thank you, Rob, for uh, uh, Richard. Sorry for mentioning that. But I'm I want to uh, I just want to say you know I in terms of current foreign policy and why we're losing wars. I think it has a lot to do with pragmatism and the failure to understand principles. So let me leave it there. And um, you guys are, have thought a lot more about this and I'm happy to come back to it. But, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, let, let me just say, I've, I've like everyone, I followed the complete disaster in Afghanistan with sorrow and outrage, and um, and that's a very concrete thing, uh, which you guys have been thinking about a lot more than I have recently. So let me let me let me turn it back to you guys. Rob, what are you thinking? Okay, well, uh, by the way, thanks for uh, uh, David for mentioning that about the history of the Islamic world because it, I think there's a fascinating thing there. I'm going to have to check out what you've what you've uh, uh, written or, or said about that because yeah, I've, I've heard that Al Ghazali described as the Immanuel Kant of the Islamic world. He wrote on the incoherence. Uh, I think his big work is the the incoherence of the philosophers. So he was the philosopher who came along in the Islamic tradition and basically said, forget about philosophy. Uh, they actually had a term for it, falsafa, which is the Arabized version of philosophy. They, you know, conquered all this Greek Greek and Roman territory. They had encountered yeah. uh, classical philosophy. They absorbed a bunch of it. They called it falsafa. And then yeah. Ghazali was the one who basically said, get rid of all that. And they turned against it and became, you know, relentlessly obscurantist. And uh, then just as the West was taking off, uh, and that's part of the sort of the inferiority complex driving this. Uh, now, as for our own inferiority in the current situation, yeah, I think you're right. We have lost the ability to fight wars, but I would say there's one, something very specific about it. I, I, I go even below the level of pragmatism. It's, that if, it's a failure of thinking at all. So what I, saw, I, I think is especially true of Afghanistan is it's not that we failed because we have the wrong strategy. It's because is we failed because we had no strategy. That throughout, I mean, I've been following Afghanistan throughout, and we really had, you know, after the initial thing of okay, let's let's team up with the you know the the, the Northern Alliance and and sort of friendly Afghan tribes, let's team up with them, give them air support, and overthrow the Taliban and drive them back out of the cities and and into the into the mountains to hide. After that, we didn't really ever have a coherent, long term strategy in Afghanistan. We sort of switched back and forth between different things. Um, now, when we talk about strategy, I want to say, you know, we talk about military strategy, we talk about foreign policy. I think the concept we need to start with here is the biggest concept, which is sometimes called grand strategy. So grand strategy is sort of a grand integration of your idea of a, 
am I, are you losing my audio? We're still hearing the audio, but don't see your handsome face, but we're still hearing you. Okay. So you're losing the video, but you still hear me. That's fine. I, I think my yeah. internet connection is not the greatest. So that, I'm back. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, so I'll just keep heard... talking. I'll just keep yeah. talking, even if my picture doesn't show up. Oh, so grand uh, strategy okay. is like the highest, it's the highest level integration of military strategy, of non-military foreign policy, and your general view of what it is you want to do or what it is you want to accomplish as a country uh, in, in shaping the rest of the world. So to take some historical examples, you talked about we won the Cold War. So we had two, well, really, there were three competing grand strategies throughout the Cold War. So very early on, and people don't remember this very well because we think, oh, Cold War, the strategy was containment, right? So the, the yeah. grand strategy was yeah. that the big contest of our era is a contest between uh, the Soviet Union, between communism and capitalism or communism and, a free, and the free world. They didn't always say capitalism, but they said the free world. Uh, yeah. So it was communism and the free world. And there was a grand struggle between these two entities. And, then, and the center of communism was the Soviet Union. And our strategy is that the Truman sort of version of the strategy is we're going to contain the Soviet Union. They're trying yeah. to expand out. They just took part of Eastern Europe. They want to take all the rest of Europe. They want to take places in Asia. We're going to contain them within those 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 borders. And that's how yeah. we're going to do it. We're going to contain them and keep them from expanding until they somehow, uh, George Kennan's had a famous memo where he's laid this out, until they somehow with this vague way mellow out in the future. It, right. it was all a little yeah. vague. Right. Now, what people don't remember is originally the containment as a grand strategy had a rival, which was rollback. Yeah. And so uh, I think it was, it may have been Nixon or one of the other people in the 50s who talked about the, the cowardly college of containment or something like that. And it probably is Spiro Agnew with that, with that sense of alliteration. Oh, yeah, it sounds um, like Agnew. Uh, it but, sounds like Agnew. Yeah. <laughs> Nattering Nabobs of negativity. You of negativism, of yeah. Containment. Yeah. yeah um, so the, um, but the, so the idea with the, the, the co competitor to containment was rollback. The idea that, no, we should be supporting uprisings in Hungary. We should be supporting uprisings in Czechoslovakia. We should be trying to take back that territory that has, that the Soviets have taken and shrink them back even further and make them less powerful. Now, this is all based in the context, of course, of we just got out of a giant world war. We didn't want to have another one, and especially once we had nuclear weapons. So the goal wasn't to fight the Soviets in a conventional war. The goal was to push them back, either to push them back or keep them within their borders. And that was the big debate. Now, what happened is the rollback side sort of lost the debate. Containment became the, stand, the, the consensus uh, grand strategy. And then that was re uh, challenged by detente. And detente was... We shouldn't be confrontational with the Soviets. We should have detente literally means like friendly relations between enemies. And so we should be cooperating. We should be selling them grain. We should have cultural exchanges. We should be going to each other's, you know, to the Olympics, et cetera. Right. We should have all this outreach with them. And if we're just nicer to them, you right. know, that, the, bol that, the, uh, the, bol uh, the Bolshoi ballet, the ballet and all the cultural exchanges. And it, it, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Right, right. Right. So and what happened with Reagan is now I think Reagan gets a little over glamorized because I remember at the time 
I remember uh, conservatives doing editorial cartoons portraying him as a hippie peacenik uh, <laughs> in the mid eighties uh, yeah. because he had you know gone and done uh, nuclear weapons reductions treaties and yeah. things like that yeah. with, the so- with the Soviets. <laughs> but he had had been part of that rollback uh, uh, strategy, and he had you know very famously in the seventies when he was asked what's your how what's your idea of our strategy towards the cold war he says well it's very simple we win they lose we win they lose and, he told he told dick <laughs> allen that yeah amazing yeah yeah the national yeah, security advisor yeah so it, it was a bit more of a throwback to the rollback era and i think yeah. i've also heard stories about when when you had the solidarity protests in poland that he you know said and they started to have a crackdown this will be set a crackdown against solidarity <laughs> Uh, uh, this dissident, move, you know, widespread, uh, large <clears throat> nationwide dissident movement against the Soviets, that he was like he was beside himself. That why are we in this position that we can't do more to help them? Uh, and never wanted. And part of the Soviet nuclear build, uh, the, sorry, the American you know, nuke, the Reagan nuke, uh, uh, military buildup in the eighties was basically to say, look, we have allowed ourselves to not be strong enough that we can actually, you know, take them on. Uh, I remember I, I I'm down in central virginia so um i went off a friend of wanted to go to norfolk virginia to the naval station there and do a tour and we got to tour a nuclear submarine it was great uh but i'm walking along the docks there where they have you know the nuclear submarines and the cargo ships and all these things they have them all docked there and you see these plaques in each one that size the ship and then it describes when it was commissioned and when it first went and when it was basically when it was uh, launched and I'm watch, walking along and these giant ships, one after another, and the commission dates are like 1982 and then, you know, launched in 1987. And it, all the dates are in that range. And I realized I'm, I'm walking through the Reagan military buildup right now yeah. because there are all yeah. these enormous multi-billion dollar ships that were all built in the 80s as part of this. And so it was the idea that, you know, but but more than that, it was the idea that we're going to have you know, there was a realization we have this huge advantage in high technology that we can advance our technology way faster than the Soviets can. And, you know, all the computer chips and all that, that was advancing very rapidly. And so, yeah. you know, the Star Wars missile defense, all of that was based around the idea and the stealth bomber uh, that was developed during that time. So I remember very carefully, uh, very clearly, I think something had a real role in the collapse of, of the Soviet Union that in the Gulf War in 91, there were a bunch of Soviet military observers who were on the ground in Iraq because Iraq was one of their client states. So they, you know, the the weapons and the equipment and the uh, technology and the doctrines that the Soviets used, they had exported all of that to Iraq. So this is what you call a classic proxy war, right? Where you know you have you, you have Iraq as a proxy for the Russians using their weapons, using their technology, using their their tactics. And going against yeah. America, and it was a test. And the report yeah. that came back from the Russian observers was, we're, the, the, the Iraq was totally helpless. There was nothing they could do. The Americans are so far above us, beyond us, that mil- in conventional military terms, that we can't even remotely challenge them. And that had a role, you know, along with the loss of Eastern Europe the year a couple of years before, that had a role in this sense of, you know, we have to give up uh, on on this dream of Soviet domination. Uh, so that was to the idea of, you know, a, a quasi rollback strategy, or at least yeah. even an element of that rollback strategy combined with just simply that time was on our side. And any, you know, the, the reason why containment ultimately worked is that time was on our side, that 
over time, we would become fabulously more wealthy and productive and high tech and go so far, you know, we'd, we'd be at the science fiction level beyond them with, you know, invisible airplanes, basically, that they can't see coming. Um, that that they would not be that we would we would become so much more powerful than, than them that we would be able to exert pressure on them uh i don't think that anybody even you know the most optimistic of us ever thought that they would just you know collapse and and break apart the way they did uh but it the idea that you could become so much more advanced and so much stronger and more powerful that they would be you know put on the defensive uh i think that was the that was the predictable part of the strategy so that gives you an idea of how a grand strategy works. And yeah. the most important part that I want to stress, though, yeah. is the ability to pursue a grand strategy over a long period of time. Yeah. yeah. And that was part of the, you know, we, it was 40 years that we had the Cold War. Uh, really started really in, in 1949, you know, the Berlin airlift and all of that, the, the formation yeah. of NATO. You know, 49 to 89 for 40 years and a little tiny bit at the end. Uh, we had to pursue this continuous strategy. And that's why I think examples like World War II could be a little deceptive, especially when you're talking about places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and especially Afghanistan. So World War II is this idea that, okay, we will go in an a, a, a all-out effort, yeah. a total war effort for four yeah. years. And if you think right. it's, it's like, really, it's like March 1942, because we don't really, we take a couple of months just getting our act together. It's like yeah. March 1942 to August 1945. It's, you know, three years and maybe three and a half years of actual, you know, total effort towards the war. I think the American people have demonstrated they can sustain that. But if you go beyond four years, they start to lose interest. They get impatient. I really noticed that, like, in Iraq. Yeah. Uh when you know you had the insurgency rose up in Iraq, by basically by the end of 2005, the American people were done with the war on terror. Yeah, yeah. And it became because I, you know, I was writing about it at the time, and it became it became a sort of thing where there was a certain deadening of the audience. Like you were still talking about, well, here's what we need to do, and here's how we can win, and people just weren't listening. Like they were done, they wanted to move on. And I think that the weakness we have right now is simply our inability to think about foreign policy and think about grand strategy and come up with these wide abstractions that will integrate all of our actions, the inability to think about that and maintain it over a period of time. And I think the signal thing I would say about the, uh, that, that combines, I think Bush, George W. Bush, you can argue with the details of how he did it. He was capable of thinking of it and coming up with a strategy. Um, but by the time you got Obama, Obama, the thing that I think is continuous through Obama and Trump, is that neither of them really wanted to focus on this. Neither of them wanted this to be important. Neither of them wanted it to be a central issue of their presidency. They didn't want to give it that time and attention. And so we could have just chugged along and muddled through, muddling through a little less each time because their grand strategy essentially was, we went out. We don't want to do this anymore. Uh, now, uh, with Obama, I'll just finish up a little bit with Obama and Trump talking about both of them. With Obama, he gave a speech very early on in his presidency in Cairo, I think, which is very ironic when you consider what happens in Egypt right after that. Yeah, he gave a speech yeah. basically saying, talking about how no no one country should be so dominant anymore. Yeah, and so this is basically he was announcing his leading from behind policy, which yeah. is you know this is a guy who who grew up with anti-Americanism literally at his mother's knee. His mom was a yeah. a leftist. All of her friends were radicals. Uh, 
And he grew up with this sort of idea, America's an evil imperialist power. When we get involved in the world, we just make things worse. He yeah. grew up with that as just, you know, uh, not something he literally something that he imbibed from childhood. And that was his background and his approach. Now, Obama, Obama turned out to be less radical than I feared he would be because he was also a very pragmatic politician. So his policy ended up being sort of a compromise between blame America first, you know, leftism. <laughs> Uh -huh. And, well, the Republicans will yell at me if I close gun down Guantanamo or withdraw uh -huh. from Iraq or yeah. well, he, well, she did withdraw from Iraq. But if I withdraw from Afghanistan, they'll yell at me. So he would occasionally, you know, do make gestures. So there was like a mini surge that he did in Afghanistan in 2009, yeah. 2010. But he announced it. And the same time he announced we're surging troops in, he says, but we're going to withdraw them at this certain date in the future. So it was very, you know, he was he was going down the middle of the road and everything. It's like, we're going we're gonna to fight really hard, but not for very long, so don't worry about it. And they sent the message to, to the Taliban of just outlast us. You know, we're, we're, we're on our way out as soon as we possibly can. And uh, so I think he was, you know, he recently, his strategy was, I don't want to have America leading. I don't want to have America doing these grand things on the world stage. I'd really rather that all that disappeared. Uh, and you can see that in his response to, for example, to the Arab Spring, which is basically, I'm, I'm here observing, tell me who wins. Uh, we're not going to get, a, we're not going to do anything about it. Um, and then you get Trump and Trump has a grand, had an implicit grand strategy, I think, but I think his, his implicit foreign policy was basically mercantilist because he also gave a speech very early on a big foreign policy speech he gave when he was a candidate. And basically it was that his foreign policy was the trade war. His foreign policy is China's taking advantage of us. We have trade. Uh, he, he came from a very anti-free trade background. Uh, I, I published a piece by a young fellow named Stuart Hayashi who dug into this about how he went to Wharton uh, School of Business. And the Wharton School of Business, basically going back to its foundation, was anti-capitalist. It was an anti-capitalist school of business and specifically was based, was founded on anti-free trade ideas. So he, he had absorbed all this and he had this idea that, you know, America, he had this very zero sum game view of the world. Yeah. Right. And if we're engaged in trade with other people, if they're not losing, then we must be losing. And, uh, you know, and if they're losing, then we're winning. And so because, you know, we have trade going on with all these countries and they're taking away our jobs, supposedly. Therefore, that was the real focus of his uh, foreign policy. You can see that really with his attitude towards China is he started a trade war and tried to make all these trade deals and, and couldn't push them on various concessions. But he wasn't really focused on things like crushing, you know, the, the, the Chinese crushing uh, the remaining liberty in Hong Kong or the uh, and there's, there's some reports that he sort of gave a green light for them to uh, put the Uyghurs in concentration camps in Western China. So the, uh, the idea of, of, of human rights or individual rights or freedom, political freedom being any part of his agenda just was not on the table. And it was really more of, I'm, I'll be against China, but only on the trade issue and not on anything else. And I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put our relations with our NATO allies, make that dependent on the fact that, well, they need to be paying more money and uh, it, it was very mercantilist in its outlook in his foreign policy. And yeah. uh, so, you know, the question is that there was never a grand strategy that actually addressed for either of those two people that ever addressed how is America going to deal with the threat from radical Islam and the threat from terrorism? 
And because of that, it all just went to the back burner. And we would do sort of do one thing and another thing. And we never really had a sustained strategy in Afghanistan other than just let's muddle through where we are. So I think a couple of things I'm hearing, Rob, what the, the grand strategy, uh, whether it's you know a good strategy or not, the grandness part of it gets to Dr. Kelly's point about, are we going by pragmatism or not? Are we going by range of the moment you know, kind of uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of stuff, which has been a disastrous thing for the U.S. But, but I, but I think what you're saying is, and I think it's true that the grand strategy part of it is a good part of it. It's better that we think that way. Maybe the, maybe the American system is vulnerable to the idea that presidents can uh, turn every four years or so, and the whole strategy changes. So, we don't want an authoritarian system, I understand, but it does, it does. We do run the risk of changing the strategy as new parties come in. Let, but let me ask you this, Rob. Um, play around with this idea a little bit. For perhaps the victory over the Soviet Union uh, was made possible by a more vigorous Reagan policy, as you say. He he was on record saying, uh, "My strategy is we win, they lose. None of this balance of power stuff." Uh, none of this uh, let him off the hook with moral equivalent stuff. You know, his early years in office, he was explicit and got hell for it for calling them the evil empire, for saying they will lie and cheat and do anything they can to get their way. I mean, Reagan was really going at it in a moral way. But let me ask you this. Is it possible that the reason the U.S. could succeed in the, in the Cold War, where they could not in the, call it the Islamic War, is it was against godless communists. So a semi-religious U.S. could more easily say, we're, we're fighting literally the infidels of the unbelievers with the unbelievers who were in Moscow. Now, if you go up against, however, the Middle East, you've got Christianity versus Islam, and you even have in Bush an, an evangelical, I think he even described himself as a, a born-again. So I remember... Oh, right actually, after, can, I, can, I, can I just... Hold on, Richard, I want to go into that because that one I covered at the time, okay. that was never true. He was never born again. He was never evangelical. He remained like a yeah. Presbyterian to the end of his life. He's the okay. mainline Protestant. No, but the, interesting, yeah. there's an interesting story in that because what happened is there was okay. this sort of huckster, this evangelical huckster who said, no, I converted George W. Bush. I met him and I, he had a born again experience with me. And the guy was promoting oh. himself and it, none of it was true. But here's the thing, Trump, this Bush was running for office. He wanted to get the Southern evangelical vote. So it was yeah. never true, but he did go out okay. of his way to deny it. <laughs> yeah, but still, okay, okay, let's, okay, so set that aside. I won't, I won't classify him that way if that, if those are the facts. But still, I remember soon after 9-11, I mean, within days, I, I re recall him being interviewed in the Oval, Oval. And his line was something like, you know, they were asking, what are you going to do? The line was something like, I'm a, and he was saying this wistfully. I'm a Christian man, but I must respond and avenge this attack. So to me, the but was very interesting because it's almost like he was saying, if I followed a truly Christian policy, New Testament type stuff, I would turn the other cheek and forgive. And so, um, so, so play with that a little bit, Rob. If you have Old Testament Judeo approach, eye for an eye, which we see in places like, you know, Netanyahu and Israel, and the U.S. approach is a bit more Christian, New Testament, 
turn the other cheek, not just turn the other cheek, especially turn the other cheek to an enemy. Is that a reason? Is there any plausibility to that causing us to have less, less success with a less militarily uh, dangerous foe in the Middle East than we had with the Soviets? Well, okay. So I think there is, there's something to it, but I think, I think it's a much more complex than that because, you know, I actually was a somewhat unique among objectivists. I was somewhat controversial in defending some of the things George W. Bush has said, yes, uh, specifically about yeah. how, well, specifically he, he went out of his way to say, this is not a religious war. And I uh -huh. thought that was good because what we, I wouldn't want it to be is sort of the Ann, Ann Coulter famously got booted off of National Review because it, like a month after September 11th, she said, uh -huh. well, we should we should go and we should kill all the leaders of the Taliban and we should convert them to Christianity. And, <laughs> you know, the idea of her, uh -huh. like, this, she wanted to have it be a religious war that we we're going to force our goal is to our grand strategy is we're going to go in the Middle East and kill people until we can forcibly convert them to Christianity. Well, that's not that's yeah, that's a, an American theocratic. Uh, uh, grand strategy. So I, I, I didn't want this idea. Now, there was a whole little story there about how Bush came out and said some of these more conciliatory things about Islam. And then he met yeah. with Bernard Lewis, who is a very yeah. famous uh, scholar right. of the Middle East, who basically right. said, you know, Ixnay, stop doing that because the more you do that, the weaker you seem to them. And Bush actually changed his rhetoric a little, but he did, you know, I, I appreciate the fact, though, that he didn't say, um, this is a, you know, this is a religious war. This is a war of Christianity versus Islam. Right. And, uh, Rob, Rob, just, and let, me, let me just, let me just interrupt briefly. So for the listener, for the listeners, especially the young ones who may not remember this, this was a, or this was Bush saying, you know, after 9-11, Islam is a yeah. good and peaceful religion. We're not against, uh, you know, the Iranian or Iraqi Afghanistan people. We're against this, uh, how did he call it? He actually used the word hijack, which I always hated. That the religion yeah. has been hijacked by a subset of a subset of an extreme version of a already extreme, right? That's what Lewis was telling him, no, no, back off from the end. You really shouldn't be saying that. You're conceding, not just too much, you're conceding something to the end. Was that the context where Lewis came in and said, don't do that? Yeah, the basically that was the context. He was saying, you know, so don't go, don't go that far with talking about how, with talking about how much you love Islam, uh, yeah. that you also have to yeah. appear, you have to appear strong. Uh, yeah. But the, uh, but you know, like I said, I appreciate the fact that it wasn't framed as a purely as a religious war because then you know that means okay, it's Christianity versus Islam. What would that imply? It would imply the Ann Coulter approach. Um, uh -huh. So he viewed it as uh, uh, now the the other aspect of this though is that you mentioned the eye for an eye tooth for tooth approach well i think that has yeah. sort of been the israeli approach but i think we have to mention that that's been a, a long drawn out failure for the israelis uh and i think that's actually uh you know one of my complaints is that i think that's actually sort of what we ended up doing in afghanistan by default because what we did is uh and by the way if you want to talk about afghanistan you know that, that approach of simply be as harsh as humanly possible, bomb as many people as possible. Well, the Soviets did that in Afghanistan and it didn't yeah. work for them. And I think you can look at the talk about Israel. Israel's approach has been, uh, you know, Hamas launches rockets against us and we bomb Hamas. Well, wash, lather, rinse and repeat. It just goes over and over again. And what you have is 20 years of Hamas launching rockets at your people every couple of weeks. I mean, it's literally at the point in Israel where by code, all new buildings have to be built 
with all new residential buildings has to be built with like reinforced uh, safe rooms. Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, con reinforced concrete safe rooms so that everyone in every apartment has a room you can retreat to that will be rocket proof. So it's literally a bunker as rocket proof as so possible. It's, it's literally a bunker mentality, a bunker strategy, a defensive yes. approach. Now, what about the argument? Rob, that it really wasn't an Israeli failure. It was the U.S. restraining Israel. I mean, that did happen a lot where Israel could have yeah, gone yeah. in there and just rooted out these guys. And the U.S. restrained the U.S. said, no, 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 don't do that. So it, there, it there wasn't were incidents of that. Like, like there was, uh, I think one famous, famous, one, I think Beirut in, I think, 1982 or yeah. something like that, where they, yeah, you know, they had yeah. PLO, they had the PLO guys surrounded. And yeah. we told him to back off and the Arafat gets on a jet and goes to Tunisia and, you know, he goes and lives another day. But I actually think that the the worst thing with the thing about Israel, though, is that they did sort of what we did in Afghanistan just now. They did, I think my controversial thesis, though, I think it's actually not that controversial. It's starting to emerge as, as people are realizing this is what we actually did is we tried we're trying to do with the Taliban what the Israelis did in 1993 with the PLO. So what happened is they decided, you know, we've done this 20-year-long occupation, yeah. roughly 20 years, you know, from 1967 yeah. war up to 1987, 88. You know, we, yeah. we, we've done this 20-plus-year-long occupation of, Israel, of the Palestinian territories. It's a quagmire. We're bogged down. We don't, we're don't. we tired of it. We don't want to do this anymore. So they said, what we're going to do is we're going to – and this is, this is literally what they did. It took me a while to figure out because it's so insane – they basically said, we're going to be the new sponsor for Yasser Arafat. So they took advantage yeah. of the fact the Soviet Union had collapsed. The Soviet Union had been Arafat's, the PLO's sponsor. They provided yeah. security. They provided weapons, all that sort of thing. They, he has to have a sponsor now. He's in panic mode. So we will be his new sponsor. We'll set himself up. We'll set him up as the dictator, basically, of this little strip of land, the Palestinian Authority. And because we're sponsoring him, he will be our friendly dictator. And it was literally a friendly dictator strategy that they had where we were going to set up Yasser Arafat of the, and the PLO as our, as our guys, our, you know, our SOB, who will keep the Palestinians in line. Uh -huh. And yeah. that, that, that was the strategy they pursued. And, of course, it, it, you know, it, it turned out exactly how you would expect it to turn out. Uh, I think I see a lot of evidence that's what we're doing in Afghanistan right now, uh -huh. that it's a, it started under Trump and was continued under, under, um, under Biden. That the idea was, when well, we went out of Afghanistan, we're tired, we've been here 20 years, we don't want to do this anymore. So what we're going to do is we're going to negotiate with the Taliban. So the first thing we did is we started negotiating directly with the Taliban. We cut out the Afghan government. And that was a very big signal to say, you know, the, Af the, the Taliban were recognizing as the new government of, uh, of Afghanistan. And we're basically abandoning the, the, the government that we were supporting before, the Afghan the the, the African government we set up and then we negotiated with them. We released their, their, their people and uh, uh, like 5,000 prisoners. We, we insisted that they be released and we basically negotiated with them. I, I think the negotiations we were trying to make was, you know, we'll let you, we'll anoint you as the new leaders of Afghanistan. We'll, we'll let you take over, but do it slowly and uh, you know, allow us to basically uh, make an orderly withdrawal as 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 we do this and of course the taliban you know saw us coming a mile away and said okay great we'll do everything you want and then didn't do it slowly they just took over and and forced us into an embarrassing and disastrous withdrawal uh but you saw like in the final weeks uh 
of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you saw things like uh, uh, American general referring to, uh, at, at, to, to Taliban leaders as our Afghan partners and as our security yeah. partners. Yeah. You know, that, that we were somehow, we were working with the Taliban. And I thought, you know, that, that blew my mind because I thought, you know, if I could send this as a little telegram back to me, you know, in October of 2001, yeah, and, and tell me, tell me yeah, that 20 years from now, this is going to happen. I, I would not have yeah. believed it was, it could even be possible. Yeah, or, or, or uh, imagine, or imagine Rob, 1944, uh, 45, 46, 47, this thing is going on and on. We're not winning. And then someone at some point says, why don't we just uh, strike a deal with the Nazis? Why, why don't we just sit down and say, this thing's interminable, you know, get Hitler and uh, Himmler in the room and uh strike a deal and try to i mean it's just mind-boggling to even imagine that might have been tried but let me let me ask uh, pivot back to david because rob mentioned a guy who you know david bernard lewis and bernard lewis if i re recall cor correctly uh, you know a british historian who began with a, a specialty in the ottoman empire but then uh, in the 90s shifted to trying to understand islam and he you could call him a hardliner but he was the one who actually came up with the idea of clash of civilizations, which was taken up later by Samuel Huntington. And I know, David, I think you have a specific view of this. You've written on this where you said, now, you know, it's not really the clash of civilizations, you know, between, say, Islam and Christianity or the Arab world versus America. You, you think it goes much deeper, I think, if I, if I read you right, mm -hmm. you know, that it's anti-modernity. It's anti-modern. And so it's going to encompass not just a hatred of the U.S., but a hatred of the West and not just Western civilization, anything that's close to being modern. You want to elaborate that, elaborate on that? And is it relevant to whether we win wars or anymore? Is that that take? Well, sure. I, I'll try to be brief because I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking and by profession of philosopher, from 30,000 feet above the level that yeah. you guys are talking about. Oh, so, okay. yeah. um, and I, I really appreciate your on the ground uh, information, but yes, my view is that um, there, ultimately there's a, a single cultural war going on in the West and in Islam <clears throat> and possibly in, in East Asia as well. And that is, um, and I define it in terms of there's the modernist view, which modernist approach, which is basically comes from the enlightenment of freedom, trade, capitalism, limited government. Yeah. And um, but the underlying values of rationality, progress, prosperity. And it's opposed on the one hand by the pre-modern view uh, uh, of you know, which some conservatives embrace in part anyway, that we need more faith, we need more tradition, the kind of thing that Ayn Rand um, really objected to in the conservative case for capitalism, that yeah. it, it's yeah. good because it's, I don't know, there's, it's traditional and because there's some yeah. foundation in the Bible yeah. and yeah. Uh, because, you know, there's even an altruist element. You succeed by serving others in, you know, yeah. Yeah. products. Yeah. And, but then there's the um, postmodern uh, view, which is 
uh, informed by an understanding of the Enlightenment and hatred of it. And that emerged in the what's called the counter-revolution in the 19th century, and which my our colleague Stephen Hicks has written extensively about, uh, which said, no, individualism, uh, uh, rationality, secularism, that's all wrong. Um, they were still secular, but they were uh, hostile uh, to the individualism, rationality, capitalism and progress of the Enlightenment. So that's what we're facing today. We face it in the U.S. with wokedom on the one side and some conservative faith-based uh, uh, attitudes on the other. And the same thing's happening in Islam. It's just that in Islam, the cultural predominance is with the pre-modern view. Um, and where, you know, the, the but they, the, the idea that the Quran and Sharia will define not only our personal, you know, spiritual lives, but our politics. Yeah. Um, but combined with, they have imported, and this is my view and, and, and that of other many other scholars, uh, many scholars who are specialists, as I'm not, um, that they've imported the totalitarian ideas, both from fascism and from communism, uh, as well as postmodern ideas, so that they've imported those in because they see some connection between um, their uh, uh, the faith-based faith the the Quranic traditional Islamic uh, totality uh, totalitarianism. It, it's in, reinforced a kind of totalitarian view of Islam yeah. as a governing religion. So anyway, it's 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 a mishmash, but um, and I think the the one of my points is that I think that the U.S. is just our leaders anyway, our foreign policy people have just not grasped this, partly because they're um, they are uh, you know the, like you you were saying Rob was saying Christianity versus Islam. Okay, they're both religions, so we can't be too hard on Islam as yeah. faith and um, and. Also, you know, going back much further, I ran back in the 50s, it was a discussion where she was pointing out that in, in some discussion between Khrushchev and Eisenhower, um, Khrushchev oh, yeah. said, well, your system's based on greed. And Eisenhower had no answer. Yeah. And I ran was, what? Yeah. Apoplectic, you're the leader of our country. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I'll just leave you with one quip uh, that I've mentioned you, uh, Richard, before, that 9-11, this is from uh, Ed Crane, the founder and uh, longtime CEO of the Cato Institute. After 9-11, he said, you know, 9-11 was the ultimate faith-based initiative. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Devastating. Yeah. For the younger and, ones, in the, for the younger ones in the audience, faith-based initiatives. I think in the first year <laughs> of the Bush administration yeah. was a phrase from the Bush administration. And there, Rob, well, I think it was a, the view that uh, okay, the welfare state's not that effective at getting aid to the needy, so let's help faith-based groups, churches, and other things, and finance them directly. Set up a little office in the White House, and yeah, so faith-based initiative was on the lips of almost everyone pre nine eleven. So yeah, that yeah. quits by Ed Crane afterwards. Well, you know, Bush got his own 
taste of the faith-based initiative <laughs> coming from uh, Al-Qaeda. Yeah, that is uh, fairly grim. So, you know, I, I want to I'd say like also that, that the, um, and, and then Abby, um, if you want to check out the chat room, I, I thought I we would turn to questions for a moment and then we can come back to this, but let's put out on the table also, because we haven't talked much about strategy in the field, but that a really dominant book from 1977 called Just War, uh, I think it was called Just Wars and Unjust Wars by Michael Walzer, um, basically had the idea that you should not touch civilians, you should have restrictive rules of engagement, that uh, you should pull your punches, so to speak. So, so that has, I would argue, infested uh, the military academies, foreign policy generally, but it has more to do with how you execute once you do decide to go to war. And I think that's been enormously damaging to, uh, you know, well, the whole theory of all out war, complete war, total war, the, the kind of Curtis LeMay view from the 40s, where he said, no, you just bomb and strafe Japan and put an end to it. Or going back to the Civil War, Sherman. Uh, Lincoln had to fire, well, I don't know, four or five generals in a row because they wouldn't execute the war in, a, in an aggressive way. And until Sherman was hired and went down and burned Atlanta to the ground and tried to drive them into the Atlantic Ocean, I mean, it was uh, not ended until then. So it sounds grim, it sounds harsh, but in, in many ways, it's very much anti Walzer. So we can talk about that. And and the other thing is that on quotes, uh, you, you have to remember this great quote from, uh, some of you may know it, from Patton. Patton said to the Third Army in 1944, famously, now this is the complete opposite of altruism, right? And altruism says self-sacrifice is noble. And we often, we often hear that we love our soldiers because they, you know, paid the ultimate price. They sacrificed it. You know, as if they really went there and they wanted to die. No, they did. They wanted to come home with liberty. But Patton's famous line was, uh, I'm reading here, no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is so, it's kind of, again, kind of crude. But, I mean, if you, if you even imagine someone like uh, Millie, saying that today you just wouldn't believe it but uh abby are there i can't see the chats but you want to pick out some questions or comments that we might chew on yeah so there um i hope you guys can hear me there have been like quite a few comments and um some questions i'm kind of going back up to the top here okay um so past all of my initial comments yeah. um i'll kind of go in order the first person i see who commented here is Scott S, did you have anything? I don't know if you had anything you wanted to say or any questions. Some of these were contemporary based on what we were saying in the moment. So yeah. I just want to talk with people. Okay. Um, you said Bob, I see here, Bob's 2010 defense. Is he still here, Scott? No, he's here. Oh, was that the one about the defense? Um, of McCaskey. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a little off topic, but. Rob, you want to take you want to take that one? Oh well, this is this is part of the uh, our own little domestic wars that we have. The objectives for us, <laughs> uh, right? Well, right. Uh, it's another the, the very, it's another civil a civil war, a civil hot yeah. cold civil wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and actually, well, it relates to this in the sense that I think that 
it came out of my frustration that in writing about the war on terror, I yeah. felt like there was too much like a, a dogma from up above, but here's what you're supposed to say about the war on terror. And if you dissent from that, then you're the bad guy. Yeah. And it was the dogma was being set, set by a philosopher who's commenting on that 30,000 foot level that David was yeah. talking about. And, um, you know, I, I, and not sort of, you know, I, here I was immersed in covering the war on terror yeah. and, um, you know, so part of that, by the way, is to, to bring it back to our topic here, that I actually do think that the just war theory argument, because that was sort of the thing that was coming down that you, you, you have to sign up for this. I thought, and I know, I think the source of that was John Lewis, the late John Lewis, when it was a friend of yours and a friend of mine. Uh, but I disagreed with him on the, I thought he exaggerated the impact of that particular theory. Now, my okay. more yeah. technical quibble is that the name Just War Theory is actually a much broader category. There's this particular book by a guy named Walzer who had his own version of it. But Just War Theory in philosophy is sort of like ethics, right? It's 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 a yeah. wide category and evolves all sorts of different views. And I also yeah. think that it was inaccurately ascribed that the Bush administration was uh, was basing its views on just war theory. And there was actually Walzer himself that said, no, uh, my, just, my version of just war theory is different from what the Bush administration is doing. So he thought they were too aggressive and too, uh, too, uh, too, um, uh, too, you know, they were, they were, his idea of the, the using force preemptively against uh, weapons of mass destruction, for example, was uh, something that he disagreed with. And that was that was the rationale that Bush was using. Um, but I will say this, that I, I in terms of so the McCaskey affair was a thing where there was another case where there was sort of the philosopher from 30,000 feet dictating views down to the person who's actually there in the trenches, in this case, right in John McCaskey's case, writing about political science. And so I was inveighing against the general idea, which I think has been a problem in objectivism, of having this top down view that philosophy dictates all the details. And, you know, so I think it's important to have this idea that, yes, you can have bad philosophy up there, but you also have to understand how it is that it actually interacts with all the details of foreign policy, of the nature of the enemy, the nature of the, 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 the military tactics and the nature of military force. And the big thing that I sort of dissent from among the objectivist crowd is the case I make for, quote unquote, nation building and also for counterinsurgency warfare. So I think one thing that everybody's wrestling with, and it really come out early on, is this weird paradox that, you know, the enemies we're fighting now are not anywhere near as tough as the Soviet yeah. Union right. or communist China. I mean, we had this right. really fearsome, giant armies, technologically advanced nuclear yeah. weapons. I mean, you know, the Soviets eventually fell behind, but they had engineers. They had, yeah. uh, they had actually they had a lot of skilled and talented engineers working for them. They got a lot of, uh, what was it, the, in the movie The Right Stuff, there's the... These guys debating about the U.S. versus the Soviet Union and saying, "One guy says our Germans are better than their Germans because yeah, yeah, well, we we took all the German engine, we took all the German Vernon, engineers Vernon and the rocket and, guys yeah, and, and yeah. von Braun and all those people von and we Braun, divided right. them amongst ourselves, right? right. And and so um, you know the, what made them really difficult enemies is that on the level of conventional warfare they were actually formidable of opponents. They had large armies. They had you know, industrial capacity to build tanks and planes, and they had engineers to build technology that they couldn't keep up with us. But it was a conventional uh, war uh, standoff. And so it seems like well, if we could beat these really powerful enemies, why can't we be, beat, you know, these guys in mud huts, why can't we beat them? And I think the problem is that 
we're fighting unconventional war. And I think we have no choice but to fight unconventional war. So I think what happened after, really after the Gulf War was the, in 91 was the, was the dividing line, where we demonstrated without a doubt, we are, you know, way beyond anybody else. Nobody could challenge us on conventional war. And then what always happens is you, know, you can decide what kind of war you want to fight, but the enemy gets a vote. And our enemies looked at that and said, well, we better fight them using unconventional tactics. So, for example, Saddam Hussein was a great fan of the movie Black Hawk Down. Right, because it showed that we went into Somalia and we were fighting an insurgency, we were fighting a population, we, we were fighting an unconventional war, and we weren't prepared for it, and we we lost. And he, he saw that as the pattern going forward. Now, it turned out to be the pattern going forward, but just not for him, because he really couldn't employ that. And but he what happened in Iraq is that the you know the the Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda in Iraq and later Islamic State, ISIS, uh, they took and and of course the Taliban are the ultimate practitioners of unconventional warfare. And so one of the things that happened, this is a lot thing goes back a long time. We used counterinsurgency principles towards the end of the Vietnam War. We didn't use them at the beginning. We had this whole stupid war of attrition thing at the beginning. We just kill enough people and somehow the war will end. We started to use counterinsurgency techniques towards the end of Vietnam. But by then we were on our way out. We were, we were going out the door. Uh, we were, had decided to abandon South Vietnam. So what happened is, and I talked to people in the military who said they would, they lived through this, that they were doing counterinsurgency training. And then one day, like 1975, a guy shows up and says, no, we're not shut it all down. We're not doing this anymore. So we decided we're not, we're never going to fight another counterinsurgency war. Though we just, they're just going to get bogged down. They don't work. Vietnam was a disaster because Vietnam was such a terrible disaster. We're never going to fight another counter, counterinsurgency war. So let's stop learning how to do it. And one of the big lessons that some people drew from from the war on terror is we came into Afghanistan having to fight an unconventional counterinsurgency war and we had no training no doctrine no military preparation whatsoever now the cycle i'm concerned about is what we do this is a very american way to do things is we decide we're never going to fight a counterinsurgency war so we're not going to train for it we're going to have no knowledge of how to do it then we're going to get into a situation where the counterinsurgency war is the only kind of war that, that we can fight in this case. The Taliban don't have a conventional force that can be defeated. And so we have to fight a counterinsurgency war. So we try to do it, but because we've never learned how to do it, we do it really badly. And then we lose and we decide, well, therefore, we should never fight this kind of war again. And we stop training. Uh, it shuts out all the training and don't even attempt. Now, in Afghanistan, we never actually tried a proper counterinsurgency strategy. We sort of temporized with what is actually more called counterterrorism. And this is actually this is Biden's plan for what we're going to do uh, um, uh, after now that we've left is we're going to do counterterrorism. And it's going to be sort of over the horizon counterterrorism. So we're going to strike from afar with cruise missiles and drones. And the problem with that in Afghanistan, it was always just a matter of you identify some bad guy, you go in, you bomb him and then you go and you leave. And it doesn't really change anything on the ground. Right. So what we needed was to actually establish some degree of authority for the Afghan government, a sustainable way for them to fight. And we achieved this sort of halfway. We actually the Afghan National Army fought our war for us to a very large extent, especially in the last 10 years in Afghanistan. But we never really had a strategy to say, let's go in and do that fully and make that our strategy, because that's a very efficient strategy if you can do it. This is my case for nation building is if you can build up an Afghan national force and build up an Afghan government that is functional, which we, again, we didn't really do a very good job of, 
then you can get somebody else to fight your war for you. You can have, you know, 10, 20, 50,000 uh, Afghan troops on the ground fighting the Taliban and, you know, a couple thousand American special forces and advisors and CIA guys uh, helping them and giving them air support and that sort of thing. That's a very efficient way to want to run a war. Um, that's, I think, what we what could have been done in Afghanistan. And I think that's my case for why nation building is in our interests. But we never really tried to do it. And I think what we're going to end up doing is the, the paradox here of why do we lose wars against guys in mud huts? And the answer is because you have to fight against guys in mud huts in so, a very different way. You so, have to use counterinsurgency and unconventional war. You can't fight against them the way you fought against you planned to fight against the Soviets, you know, when they invaded Western Europe. So because so Rob, we didn't I would say, adjust I, well, to the way we had to fight the war. So I would say when you say, well, we didn't really try. See, I would say it gets back to this issue of we're not confident enough to say we must we we should tell you how to restructure your politics. So even in the the case which which uh, Dr. Kelly has, has made, well, nation building did seem to work post-World War II in Japan and Germany, but he also has said, well, yeah, because they had a more recent tradition of more civilized government, you know, mm -hmm. only within the decade. And that's not true of Islam. That's not true of the Middle East. So we're, we're calling upon this possibility of nation building in Afghanistan and Iraq and Pakistan and Egypt, but they don't have the pro-Western um, uh, base for us to do that. So we're not only unsure of our own Western values, they have no real source in it. Now, Rob, back to the original controversy within objectivism, just a reminder to people, if you want to look this up, Peacock, right after the attack, wrote a New York Times, was published in the New York Times, I think as a full page ad, a very interesting essay. It's called End States That Sponsor Terrorism. That was the name of it. End, interesting formulation, end states that sponsor terrorism. So his view was there should not be a war on terror because terror is a tactic. Terrorism is a tactic. It's like uh, kamikazes. You know, and if the U.S. had gone into World War II saying, you know, the enemy is this tactic called kamikaze pilots. We're going to we're going to have a war against kamikaze. <laughs> people would have people would have laughed and they would have said, wait a minute, that's not. No, it's it's Japan, it's <laughs> Germany, it's Italy. And so that's been a distinction also. And I think the Peacock approach, the ARI approach at the time, if I recall, was was venge, a vengeful kind of Old Testament approach. You attack us, we'll attack you, and then leave. We're not, we're, we'll, we'll punch you twice in the face if you punch us once, but we're not there to rehabilitate you afterwards. We're not there to well turn you into a Jeffersonian democracy because it's futile. Now, um, I, I actually, um, I, just so I'm on the record, I, I sympathize with that view more. I don't think the U.S. should be 20 years in a country trying to turn them into a democracy, not to mention the objectivist view is not that democracy is a primary, it's a technique. And if it happens to protect individual rights, fine. But we saw from the Arab Spring that they did hold elections, you know, and then they would vote for tyrants. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And so even when you put in the structure, they just up, end up voting for uh, imams and stuff like that. I think also when we talk about five years, uh, five wars in a row, although you reminded me of Somalia, so maybe it's six in a row that we've lost. Oh, there are a bunch I of little tiny ones. There are a bunch of tiny ones. It's kind of, couple, yeah, a couple of tiny ones. Right? But um, I'm also reminded that this might be interesting to people. There have been no formal declarations of war. 
by the U.S. since, for, if I recall this right, so from Korea on through, they haven't not actually gone through the actual procedure required in the Constitution where Congress formally declares war. And the reason that's important is, um, it one, it invites debate. Two, it makes it more definitive because you have to say who you're fighting. And three, it calls no, upon can I, can I... It, it calls upon a definitive end usually to the war, you know, it has to be renewed and things like that's debated. And so it, it holds out the possibility of having a definitive end to the thing as well. And the fact that that's just been thrown off, I, I think is institutionally uh, interesting as well. Okay. Yeah. Quickly, Rob. Yeah. I'm going to disagree with you there because okay. I think I actually, I used to make that argument and then I looked at it more closely. And if you look at what the constitution requires, yeah. basically it requires that Congress vote to authorize the use of military force. Well, yeah. Congress has voted repeatedly. Well, with AUMF. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is It is literally it's called an authorization for the use of military force, yeah. which is just a declaration of war by another name. Now, they continue extending it and extending it and extending it because they're kicking the can down the road because they don't have a strategy, right? But it yeah. is, it's basically an open-ended declaration of war. So I, I, I disagree with that argument because I think we have complied with the, with the actual substance of the constitutional requirement. Congress has to vote to authorize military force, i.e. declare war. We just okay. don't call All it right. by the same name because that's, you know, for okay. the same reason that we have a Department of Defense, a defense instead of a Department of War. Right. So, uh, Abby, any other chats uh, that you yeah. want to highlight? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't mean to be jumping over people, but I kind of on this topic, I think both Christopher and then John G, we have a few Johns here tonight, had some things to say about what you guys were just talking about. Um, if Christopher, if you want to say something first, he was talking about, you know, as a veteran feeling that it is sort of futile, um, sort of along the lines of what David said in terms of, you know, well, the hearts and minds battle is not really there. You're not going to convince these people to, you know, it, these nations to become, you know, democracy. So I don't know, Christopher, if you want to ask a question or elaborate on that yourself, uh, don't, don't let me butcher your, if he's, if he's here, can you, I don't can see who's, I had to scroll here. I think yeah, you're I on mute. Oh, is he struggling with the audio? This is something we're going to have to get fixed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I can, I can read what Christopher has in the chat if you can't okay. get. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll do that, Christopher. I'm sorry. We'll have to get, so those three little dots on the bottom, if you see that they should bring up your audio video settings. Okay. We'll have to get this, this glitch fixed. Um, but Christopher said, as a veteran, I have to say that nation building in the middle East is futile in a world where the UN, where the world, where there is a UN, you can only build a nation in I've those got, nations. Yeah. I've, I think I've got my audio now. Yeah. You got it. It's yeah. You. Yeah. Um, we hear I'm a veteran. I didn't serve in Afghanistan. I had friends who did. I've served in other climes. It doesn't... With the Islamic culture, they are extremely um, patriarchal and they only care about who is top dog. That's all they care about. That's why you end up with the dictators because they're the top dog. When we do the hearts and minds and all the pink and fluffy stuff, we're not acting as an alpha. We're acting as a beta, and they're not going to accept that. <laughs> the whole, our whole culture is anathema to theirs, and therefore they don't. 
we can't the Weberian doctrine is completely pointless in those areas it just doesn't work you you just can't go think oh we're going to export democracy it's never going to happen the only way we can deal with these countries if we want to involve get involved in those wars you we have to go do it in a way that the un would never accept and that is we go in we basically say our country now you're you're ours you're going to do as we say deal with it or we go in and we bash the people who attack us really hard and tr act like they would we basically assault earth strategy we basically destroy and get out and that's the because that's the only thing they'll ever respect and f it's not but it doesn't fit to our morals it doesn't fit to what we want to do which is why intervening in these areas we just have to retaliate retaliate hard and then just leave them to it and it's not because otherwise we're not we're never going to build um a country like america in the middle east hell we couldn't even do it in liberia <laughs> and actually in liberia the slaves that we put sent to uh, we that we freed and formed their own country immediately enslaved the natives yeah. and just basically became slave slave masters themselves so we couldn't even create liberia as a a a model of america in africa with people who'd actually grown up in in america we're not going to create america in the middle east it's just not christopher, I, uh, christopher you bring up a point also about the un that reminds me this issue of getting permission, not only from the UN, but any member of the UN, which are many of them are anti-American. The whole idea of diluting your own sovereignty to me is a diluting of egoism. It's a diluting of the self-confidence, the self-assertiveness of America Completely. first. So this is, it's not America first, it's America if it gets enough votes. Well, and it's, it's right, the, because it's just a continuation of the League of Nations, yeah, which was so. created to, yeah put us right. under the thumb of the right. rest of the world yeah. uh, by, so we the best thing yeah, we so, could do is just say but, guess what we're out bye the other thing is <laughs> okay so I, that, a couple that there is a there is a plausibility to the forward strategy of freedom or this idea of well we need to make them democratic and free instead of just bomb the hell out of them that there, there is something, David and I were talking about this the other night, in IR, in international relations literature for years, there's been something really kind of cool actually, identified as, and they actually use this phrase, if you look it up, called the capitalist peace. And the capitalist peace is just the empirical observation that free countries do not attack each other. Yeah, and the and that, that comes from the Kant, the documentation, that comes from, Kant uh, from the Kantian yeah. policy, but, Unfortunately, that, they're never going to be free. So you, well, I know, I, you I, can't I, work I, that with them. My, my point is that that, dot, that empiric is there. The, the, the mistake, I think, is people taking that obvious data and saying, good, then the way to do this, and they actually think it's a longer term strategy. So they think they're avoiding the pragmatism of the day by day, you know, mo moment by moment, by saying the fundamental long term solution is to turn these regimes into you know jeffersonian democracies 
So I, 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 I don't endorse that view because I think philosophically, as you're saying, Christopher, as David has said, their philosophy just isn't going to be amenable to it. But I remember Bush used to say that you're insulting the Middle Eastern population by saying they have no interest in liberty. You know, their view, the Bush view would be everyone wants liberty, Na naturally, innately, you know, inevitably. And it's just a matter of liberating them from the patriarchy. And I, I disagree with that, but I just wanted to mention this because it's not like it's a completely harebrained idea. It does come from the underlying empirics. I just think they drew, they draw the wrong conclusion from those uh, empirics. You, yeah, you, I, I, I if, think there was a thing where well, it worked in Germany, it well, worked in Japan, so it's going to work everywhere. Yeah. And it's it's accepting that there are limits to a theory to where, where it will actually work. Yeah, Rob, Rob, do you want to, did you want to weigh in on well, that? I, I okay, so, so, yeah, I do disagree. Uh, so I'm, I'm probably the last remaining defender of the forward strategy of freedom. Now, right. one of the things I want to say is that is that I if you I, I took a very deep look at there was a the national security strategy of the United States as a document that's put out occasionally yeah. as an official document summarizing basically the America's grand strategy. And the one done in 2006 by the Bush administration, I thought yeah. was very interesting and, and very worthwhile, because one of the things I want to notice about that is that the forward strategy of freedom was not the military strategy. It was the wider diplomatic strategy. It was yes, the idea that we right. should encourage yeah. and support. We should encourage right. and support free nations and the spread of liberty. Now right. he had, they had these things. They tried. This was after they had tried to get a in in Gaza uh, on you know say oh forget oh, the vote that they'd have a better system and they they voted for Hamas and there was this revision of like okay so they had they were trying to do this in flight revision of saying well it's not democracy it's liberal democracy and it's right. democracy yeah. with these certain characters you know and it was it was a it was a positive revision because they, they realized that this concept of democracy is inadequate to describe what we're trying to do so you know the, the old version of this is McDonald's index right that no coup countries that have a McDonald's have ever gone to war with each other right. i'm not yeah, sure if that's same, still true same, but it's the same idea at, yeah yeah, yeah, at the time that was coined, McDonald's having McDonald's was sort of a proxy for yeah. being yeah. a liberal, you know, a Western liberal democracy with a capitalist economy, roughly generally capital capitalist economy. So I'm not sure it's as much of a you know McDonald's has spread out a lot more. I'm not sure if it's as good a proxy now. But here's the thing I want to say: you, I don't think you can say these people are never capable of having. Now, Jeffersonian democracy is the sort of term people throw around when they want to create when when they want to make it sound like a, a crazy idea, because they mean oh they you know people are in Iraq are going to be just like Thomas Jefferson. Well, maybe they're not going to be just like Thomas Jefferson, but you could have something that's better than the dictatorships that have have you know better than a literally. I mean, Saddam Hussein's but, dictatorship, the Ba'ath Party, was cobbled yeah. together out of Leninist and 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 uh, fascist yeah, ideology. You could have something better than that, right? And, and Afghanistan's a, a much more primitive place. So you have to have very modest ambitions. But the point of that is I don't think you can say dismissively this group of people out there will never, ever be capable of this. It's a matter of time and a matter of cultural influence. Like, you know, you probably would have said 100 years ago that it, it used to be a common trope that the East, the Far East was hopelessly, you know, that, that, that uh, tyranny and despotism has been their system for all along. They're never going to be capable of, of, of having a, a quote-unquote liberal democracy or a, a Republican form of government. Well, there are you know many shining examples of that now, right? So there's South Korea and Taiwan, 
Uh, yeah. Hong Kong was the one that really amazed me that just simply living under British rule, even though they didn't get to vote, simply living under British rule and the rule of law has made them very cantankerous defenders of liberty. And there are some countries that with more or less success have large Muslim populations and a more, more liberal form of government. India has, I think, the largest number of Muslims living under a representative government uh, is in India. Or Malaysia, which has its own problems, of course. It's not a great democracy. But Rob, but, uh, but Rob I, re I recall, even in cases where the U.S. said, okay, you really have to have a constitution to Afghanistan, Iraq, or whatever. Even then, okay, that was like a better intention than just wild, unlimited democracy. But the minute they cobbled together the constitution and started putting Sharia in the constitution... Mm -hmm. The U.S. had nothing to say. The U.S. didn't say no, well, no. It shouldn't well, so, be Sharia. So what? But what? They, oh, they allowed, the U.S. allowed Sharia type constitutions to be put oh, in place, which amounts to violating rights. So right. So it's the well, same thing. But no. But the idea is we're not trying to create a perfect democracy. Now I want to go back to that. The, the national security strategy under Bush, democracy promotion was not actually the goal of the use of military force. Use of military force was described as being to, for two reasons, two things, two. Uh, uh, to go to to prevent state sponsorship of terrorism. So, you know, Leonard Peikoff got his wish. The idea of state sponsorship of terrorism is, you know, we're not going to allow states to sponsor terrorism. That was actually adopted as official policy. Now, but ultimately, I think with, with regard to Pakistan was the biggest problem with Afghanistan, that they said, okay, fine, we're not going to support the, the Taliban anymore. And then we're well. Actually, what's going to happen? We're going to wait till you get tired, and then we're going to start doing it. But, but it's not. No, but, uh, but Rob, Bush, it's, it's a it's a fact that as we stand here today, I, you can't name a single case where we ended a state that sponsored terrorism. They all still exist. Yeah, Iraq, Iraq, Iraq doesn't. Iraq sponsors. Iraq, 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 Iraq is, is an ally of Iran now. No, no, we they we ended the one terrorism. regime. No, but then that's exactly what I'm getting at, though, is that we ended the one regime that was a terror sponsor. Saddam Hussein. Yeah, but we just replaced it. Uh, but, yeah. but, but here's what I want to say. Let me get into this because this is important. Because this is an objectivist trope. Sponsors this is an, hold on. There's an objectivist trope that's been used for a long time, which is we should just go in with maximum force. We should hit them. We should destroy them. And, and then, we, then we pull out. Yeah. That was the Rumsfeld Casey strategy for Iraq. That was we come in with overwhelming military force. We overthrow the retopple regime. And then we get out as soon as possible. Now, what we found out is what happens when you get out as soon as possible. Somebody else comes in, right? And you have to have a plan for what kind of regime you're going to impose and support uh, afterwards. And that, I think, is the problem with this strategy and this complaint but about both, how well that are going to be but, democracies. So should we should right, try. So I don't we agree, should I care don't... what kind of regime comes. When we overthrow one regime, we should care what kind of regime comes afterwards. Okay, I, do, I don't agree. And on, we should we should engage in an effort. We should engage in an effort to make sure it's a better regime than the alternatives. And the you know in Iraq, the worst alternative was it becomes you know uh, uh, ISIS or Al Qaeda in Iraq takes over. We got so the I, second worst alternative, although we mostly got that under Obama, which is it becomes a sort of a semi puppet of Iran. It becomes heavily Iranian influenced. So I, I disagree on your interpretation of what we did in Iraq, but suppose your view is true. All you're all we're really saying is no matter what strategy the U.S. used, you have to admit a pragmatist even would have to admit that the practical result has been an utter failure because there are just as many states and I would say more and more formidable 
states in that region that sponsor terrorism than 20 years ago. And that, it, to, it, I mean, to the extent that's true, that is shocking, a shockingly bad result. Uh, I'm not <laughs> saying, yeah, well, okay, I'll just leave it at that. Abby, well, any, but I think I, th I think that's the result of eight of eight years, well, seven, six or seven years of muddled implementation of what I think was a generally sound strategy, but but okay. badly muddled in its implementation by Bush. And okay. then 12 years of of almost total neglect. Yeah. Okay. Abby, any others? Oh, there's probably many. Yeah, there's a lot. I know David has something to say. Okay. There's actually yeah. something to say. Um, yeah. I don't know, David. I wanted to give John a chance because he has quite a few questions uh -huh. in here as well. So, okay, good. Um, do okay. you want to let John, do you want to have your point first, David, on topic here? No, I'll pass. Thank you. Um, yeah. Let's get to our <laughs> questions. Yeah, so John, if you're still here, um, I think he had a lot of really good questions. I was um, intrigued about his, oh, he, I can't chat. He's in the library. Okay, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, well, that, let's see. Um, what else do we got? Um, David uh, J.M., do you have, you have a lot of comments and questions in here. Is there one in particular you'd like to ask? That's for, uh, for whom, Abby? David J M. <laughs> There's two Davids. Oh, uh, David J M. Yes, I see. Yep. Let me won't. Oh, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay, so. Yeah, so you know, Eisenhower talked about the um, industrial military complex many many years ago, and what if all the wars are really just distractions? I mean, when you think about war, it's wars like a stable economy. If you had a stable economy, how many, how many talking heads would be out of work? If you had peace, how many uh, arms dealers and tank builders and shipbuilders and all those people would be out of work? I mean, what if all this is just simply, you know, I always have this vision of two people playing chess and you know one side can be the left and one side can be the right and you look at the pawns and they can have labels like blm and all this other stuff but then i have this image of two people in the shadows behind the two chess players that are really the people that are calling the shots you know when you talk about obama or even biden today does anybody really believe that they're calling the shots I mean, it's different from uh, a lot of the people that we had that like even even Reagan, you know, tried to make himself like he was just some big actor. But he had a long history of anti-communist statements and 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 things. Even Trump, when Trump, you can go back to the 1980 when he was talking about the, the trade issues and things like that to suddenly have uh, Obama who what ran um, uncontested for the House and then ran uncontested in the Senate. And does somebody really believe that he was calling the shots for eight years? Um, so, so David, let me ask you a question. Sure. You, you're, you're suggesting they are all puppets, but what is your theory of who's running them? I mean, is this the military industrial complex argument? You're saying this defense, is, defense this contractors is, are just want war, just want to sell material. They, the, yeah. the defense contractors maybe don't even mind that $83 billion worth of stuff was left in Afghanistan because that makes more, more of them more to sell in the future. Is that your view that the defense contractors are doing this? 
I don't think I think it's people even above that. I think um, I What's think there are, there are larger people that that are living very very well, and uh, they they really they really just move they, they just make their money moving stuff. And, and what bothers therefore, me, Richard, the thing that bothers me is that I don't even see us even questioning it. Yeah. Anybody yeah. looking, you know who it's it's like the Wizard of Oz. Okay. Who is the main, who are the people behind the curtain? I, I, I'm just fear. I'm just, it just bothers me that people don't even raise the question that people just assume that the people playing the chess game are the people making the decisions. Well, I think Rob was right. When Rob said earlier, I think this is true. The American people generally, although I think it's a shrinking share, they're tired of these interminable wars. I think they're pissed off at the idea that they spent $83 billion on stuff that was not only left in Afghanistan, but is being picked over by China, Russia, Pakistan. I mean, it's just outrageous. But the I think you're right, David, that the it's not like the generals at the Pentagon are all that bothered about it. Richard, I, I mean, I can address something, which is which is wait, wait, I, I'm way more of a pessimist. I'm way more of a pessimist than you are because I actually believe in the horrible, frightful, terrifying possibility that Joe Biden really is in charge and he really is causing the, <laughs> calling the shots. I mean, there'd be almost something comfortable with the idea, comforting with the idea that George yeah. Soros is is yeah. behind the scenes, you know, trying to sing. Right. But I also I want to say that this whole military industrial complex theory does not cohere with the facts because we're actually now as much as we're talking about these the frustrated about losing these wars in Afghanistan and, and and having a bad outcome in Iraq and all that. We didn't really lose the war in Iraq. We lost the peace, I would say. But um, what happened is that these are actually very small wars by historical standards that the, um, uh, the there's actually there's like a war recession that's happened that after World War II, the number of major wars and casualties from war keeps going down. And then at the end of the Cold War, it goes down even further. And we're way, way down here to a tiny fraction of what you of, of the military effort and, mil and how would you explain Europe? Where they're hardly spending anything on their militaries. I mean, the military spending it is. Or um, when when uh, Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex, military spending was about eighty percent of the national budget. Right now, it's like five to ten percent. It's it's a tiny, it's a fraction of the federal budget. Um, the, you know, we're not. We we have, we. I think we just passed the point where we're we're about to pass the point where we have more debt converge to GDP than we did at the end of World War II, but we don't have that debt because of the wars we're fighting. We have that debt because we have a massive welfare state and because we're, you know, giving out um, uh, uh, pandemic handouts and, and trillion dollar spending bills. So the idea of that as the driver of the thing, and I also disagree with Richard on one thing, which is I don't think, I think uh, American people getting tired with and not wanting to pay attention to the wars is not a good thing. I think we should have a sustained effort um, and I don't think that the reason we withdrew from Afghanistan was because there was an uprising among the American people who were tired of all these sacrifices they're making for the war because the American people aren't making sacrifices for this war. Very few of them are serving in, in you know, we volunteer military. Very few people are serving. The cost of it is very tiny compared to all the money we're spending and everything else. I think people got tired epistemologically. That was the, and that's the problem I see is that people got tired. They would, it wasn't that they wanted to, they got tired materially or economically or militarily is that they just didn't want to think about it anymore. And I also think on the, at least for the Biden approach, 
I think there was a certain vindictiveness of, you know, we ought to lose this war. So therefore we're going to make it happen that we lose this war. Uh, so, you know, it was the elites who sort of pushed us in there. There was not a groundswell. Joe Biden could have kept things going at the, at the, at the, uh, for kick the can down the road for another four years with the status quo in, in Afghanistan. And probably nobody, hardly anybody except us political obsessives would have actually noticed that it was happening. So I don't think it's the American people were, were angry and, and upset. I think it's the American people were disengaged. And then there was a faction of the elites that said, we, we want, we just want to get out and we were just going to end this because we think it's a bad idea and that America should withdraw. Um, and, uh, so I, I think though, that the, the premise that somehow war is a driver of the economy, if, if there were the secret people behind want war to happen, they're doing a bad job of it because we have way less war now than we did 80 years ago. Yeah, but I don't, Robert, I don't think they care about the economy. I just think they care about their economy. It's two different things. Well, but no, really but their economy is way smaller than it used to be. So no, the idea of, of of defense and and military spending as a as a driver of everything, I think is 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 it literally it fails a basic coherence with the facts of the fact that we you know we're spending a lot on military. We're not spending a lot compared to what we're spending on everything else. I would much the, more be inclined to believe in a welfare state industrial complex. The um, <laughs> some evidence some evidence in favor of David's point is I saw a chart the other day U.S. spending on NATO is something like 70% of all spending on NATO and the US spending is something like 800 billion. And the second biggest is Britain at 80. Now to well, me, to me, what, to me, I, I understand Rob that US defense spending is shrinking as a, as a percent of total spending, but that's only because the welfare state is burgeoning beyond all control. But we might ask why and where in the US constitution does it say that the US government should be providing national defense to non-Americans. I think the animus toward Trump for saying, to hell with that, I'm not really against NATO, although I think he should have been, the Cold War is over. And the point of NATO was to oppose the Warsaw Pact. So again, all these neocons who say the US should stay involved in NATO, they're basically saying the US should have an empire, that the US should provide national security for you know, dozens of other countries. Why? We're That's not outrageous. an. We're not. Why, well, okay, first of all, we're not an why empire. Why should American? Why should American taxpayers be providing national defense for Japan, Germany, Britain? I mean, I think that's outrageous. That should be zero, in my view. I know you disagree, but I, I totally disagree. That, I, I think isn't that we, we have to start. No, the problem with America first. The problem with America first, and the America, yeah, the, the so-called America first. Because I think it's actually America last because America first basically is an isolation is what a quote unquote isolationist policy. It's a policy of saying we should be un disengaged with the rest of the world. And what it means is that we are then the last to have an influence. No, it's just power. saying no. The purpose of NATO right now. How hold on. The purpose of NATO right now. So I remember Peter Schwartz made these arguments back in the 80s. In the 80s, during the middle of the Cold War, he said, you know, we should ask NATO to, to line up more with us or we should stop supporting them. Well, the obvious problem with that is if you stop supporting NATO, you're basically giving Western Europe to the Soviets. And I know it's maddening sometimes that we have allies who now. are not putting the same effort in that we are. Uh, yeah. But sometimes even supporting an inadequate, weak, vacillating ally is better than giving up to the enemy. And in the, right now I see the purpose of NATO as being to keep the Russian, keep Russian authoritarianism out. 
And that's a serious problem that the Russian has Russia has developed a new model of dictatorship under Putin, and they are actively working to export that first into Eastern Europe. And even if here, were, and we need to even if even if that were true, we have to tell Europe that you need to stand four square with yourselves and oppose the Russians. It's none of our business. I in my view, none of our business to say we'll provide will provide the american taxpayer will pay for the defense of non-americans to me that's anti-american fundamentally well, see, but here's, here's, i want to get i want to get back to the i want to get back to the issue of grand strategy because grand strategy says you set and decide what are your strategic goals and if your strategic goals require sometimes supporting an enemy if supporting an ally who's who's whiny and and you know some some you know the french you know <laughs> an enemy who's whiny and recalcitrant and all that Sometimes you still have to do that because you're focused on what are my foreign policy goals. And the fact that it's galling or that you don't like it is irrelevant. What's irrelevant is, am I achieving my strategic goals or not? And the, com the, the complaint I have right now is I don't think we have a strategic goal. If you were to say, what is America's grand strategy? There is none. It's all purely reactive and it's purely piecemeal. And well, we kind of want to do something over here and, we, and, and we're not really committed to anything anywhere. Even you know, Biden says he's going to pivot to opposing China. I don't see that he has a great, you know, strategy he's building up for opposing China. So I think we have no, it's, it's, it's the failure. It's not that we have a wrong policy. It's that we literally have no policy. And I think we need to go back to the beginning and say, what is, what are our, our, our broad strategic objectives in the world? What is, what kind of world does America want to be in? What kind of global environment would be the best environment for us? And then ask, you know, with the considerable tools we have, military, diplomatic, economic, how do we use all of those to try to achieve that? And, I, you know, in some cases, it's going to mean, you know, we don't want Russia to overrun the Baltic states. So we we see what we could do to to deter them from doing that. So it, there's going to be all sorts of things that, that we're going to have to do, that, some of which we're not going to like. And we're going to think the Europe and we're always going to think the Europeans are whiny because they are. But you have to decide what your what your strategic goals are and then do as much as you can to achieve those with the with the considerable uh, resources that we have all right good so we are abby i'm noticing we are a bit beyond the 90 minute mark and we <laughs> yes, usually we usually try we usually try to end at 90 minutes but if you have some juicy one in in front of you you want to well, pick I you want to pick one? You want to pick one more, or yeah, I know that it's it's late. I'm on the East Coast for you, Richard. So I want to be mindful of your time. I don't no, that's know where okay. everyone. Else that's okay. But I, there's one topic that's come up a couple times. Yeah. Um, Graham, John, they keep bringing things back to um, China in a sense. Like, what yeah. do we? You know, the year. I'm um, so like you know. John just said, you know, we've got to be, we've got to get Europe to stand up to China. What yeah. you know, um, uh, Graham had mentioned the security costs of. You know, we talked about trade wars. We've talked about, you know, Russia as like the old enemy, yeah. but if China is the new enemy. Yeah. Um, to Robert's point, then are there are there security goals in mind with supporting these allies as a way to be a front against China? Um, I don't know if that's rounding up all of these China questions very well, but huh. if anyone wants to touch on China. I think that's that a good that, that that's a good way to end. So I'll ask Rob to weigh in on this. But just to just a FYI, Millie, who's very controversial now, because uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff was found to have in back back uh, channels have called his counterpart in China before 
uh, Trump left office to forewarn them that the U.S. would not attack them or something like that. So that that could be, if that's true, it could be like a treasonous act. But you dig it a little deeper into Milley, and a couple of years ago, he said something like, China is not our enemy, it's our competitor. It's a fierce competitor. It's developing a military capacity. But that's a debate within the foreign policy and military establishment that might interest people. Is it a mortal enemy of the Soviets kind? Or is it just eclipsing us like we eclipsed Britain 100 years ago? I'm not saying the US was as totalitarian as China, but China kind of doesn't allow political liberty, but allows enormous economic liberty. So, but Rob, you want to weigh in on that uh, US yeah. versus China? Are we doing I, the I, right thing on China? I just want to, th I want to throw a little cold water on the Millie thing, because you said if it's true and it's Woodward and Woodward has a tendency and Costa even more so. Hey, he has a tendency to embellish or to make yeah. to make things seem yeah. more dramatic than they really are. So I've yeah. heard some pushback to saying, look, there were, you know, a dozen people listening from the foreign policy establishment list, national security establishment, listening in on the call that Milley had with his Chinese counterpart. It's a normal routine thing. It wasn't. Done. So just don't wait on that story because it may not be what it what it seems to be. I think there's a, a certain political uh uh, effort to try to say, oh, Billy's the fall guy now. We can make him the you know, the bad guy. Um, and, you know, he may not be a great guy, but he's, th this may not be true. Anyway, but what I want to say about China is the problem we have with China is that we had a strategy towards China that we adopted for better or worse in the 90s. And it worked fairly well for a while, which is encourage their economic liberalization in the hope that that will lead to more, as it had done you know, in other in Taiwan, you know, with Chinese people in Taiwan, as they had done in South Korea. And you could say, well, and, and, and the, the hope was that we just saw the Soviet Union collapse of its own accord. Marxism is 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 discredited. And so maybe China will eventually, you know, uh, reform. And what happened is that worked fairly well up to about 2008. And that was when there was this reversal. And then the financial crisis came in the U.S., it encouraged these, the Chinese to think, oh, great, this shows the American model is not working. And they, what the big thing that happened is you had a giant wave of freedom that spread over the world after the collapse of the, of the Berlin Wall, after the fall of communism. And what always happens after you have this wave of freedom spreading out is that dictatorship finds a way to mutate and find new forms and new ideologies and new excuses and new versions of it. I just said I did an interesting conversation uh, at Symposium. I did an interesting podcast with, with Sheikha Dalmia, who's got a new thing studying authoritarianism in Eastern Europe, especially. And that was one of the things we talked about is that it found new ways to adapt to like, well, you can't get rid of the media, but you can co-opt the media and, and, and exploit various weaknesses in the media. So they find new ways. And that's what Putin did in Russia, find a new way, a new mutation of dictatorship. And that's what the Chinese did, a regime did, is they found a new mutation of dictatorship that's going to be less, you know, collectivist, dogmatically collectivist on economics. Now, what and so we, what we've had to do is adjust to the idea that our first our initial strategy of encourage them to liberalize and hope that that just keeps going has come up against the reality that it didn't keep going. And in fact, they're pulling it back now. And I think we're having a poor adjustment to that. And we need to start having more of a strategy of. Uh, I won't say that's a confrontation because we don't want a war with China. 
that would not be, you know, we want to avoid a war, but we want us to do it to them what we did to the Soviet Union. We want a Cold War. We want a situation where we are doing containment and rollback. So uh, what I would say is we need to find ways to oppose them, which includes things like building up our military forces in the Pacific, working, building up allies, building up trading partners, which I think Trump uh, unfortunately sort of cut us off on that when he stopped the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so find ways to sort of try a, a containment slash rollback strategy against China. But um, uh, the, the big question is, uh, I, the, the big positive I see is I think the Chinese are doing their best to shoot themselves in the foot right now. Because what they did is they tried to say, we, we'll, we'll liberalize the economy, we'll produce all this wealth. And then that just, since we produced all this wealth, that must mean that we, the bureaucrats in the Central Communist Party, are great geniuses who know how to do everything. So we're going to reconstitute Maoism. And that's basically what, what Xi Jinping is now currently doing, is they're trying to recreate a Maoist system. And they're cracking down on the free market. They're, uh, they're um, creating more and more government control over what gets produced and what doesn't get produced. And I think, uh, I mean, they, they, they had a, a crackdown on video games. You can't watch video games. I mean, it's becoming much more old-fashioned totalitarian Marxism. They're trying to get the Maoist band back together. And I think that's the best thing that could possibly happen for us because they're on a path that's going to really potentially just destroy all, you know, all this wealth that they're counting on to make them powerful. They're on a track to really undercut that. And I think that's, I, think I mean... My was my it God, God protects fools, drunkards in the United States of America. And, you know, we've benefited over the years from having weak and self-destructive enemies many times. My interpretation of both Russia and China over the last uh, couple of decades would be China, if you look at its authoritarian moves since 08, they're mostly political, cultural and not economic. They're not really. They're becoming economic. On the economy. But I think what's happening is that broad brush, like. David said 30,000 feet. The Russians, since the end of the Cold War, the Russians basically moved from communism toward the hybrid system called fascism. And so they're not really big on nationalization anymore. Same thing with China. They're interested in economic growth and they know it requires some semi-capitalism. But, but then meanwhile, the US is shifting the other way. The US is going from semi-capitalist to fascist. And so all three countries are basically moving toward each other. And, you know, if it goes this way for 10 more years, there'll be three fascist regimes, Russia, China, and America. And so I laugh, actually, when I hear conservatives say, oh, China is, you know, they're going back to Mao and communism. No, they're not. They're moving from communism to fascism. And in the U.S., the conservatives are helping the U.S. move from capitalism to fascism in the in the form of you get Trump with his nationalism, you get Obama with his socialism. And so that's what we have today. We have national socialism and they toggle back and forth. And anyone who knows the history knows that national socialism uh, is Nazism. So, Rob, let's close this out and tell the audience, Rob, what is the best way to keep track of what you're doing, what you're saying? Where should people go to? Where's the best place for people to go to uh, to follow you? 
the one-stop shop for all things Trzinski is the Trzinski letter. So that's TrzinskiLetter.com. Yeah. All you have to do is know how to spell my last name, which is, you know, uh, I'll, my, my prayers are, are with you on that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's written down here. So uh, uh, TrzinskiLetter.com, you can go there. And anything I publish elsewhere, which I'll publish a lot of different places, yeah. uh, will eventually be flagged there or directed there. Uh, and the other main things I'm doing are Symposium, which is Symposium.Substack.com which yeah. is an attempt to try to get debate between various strands of liberals in the proper sense, classical liberals and yeah. people who believe in a free society. And um, uh, then I'm, I'm, I'm being published elsewhere, but I think those are the two places to direct people to. And Symposium, I have seen uh, two or three. Ver- symposium is just fabulous. I mean, the oh, first uh, your first interview was, uh, was it uh, Will and Pinker, Steve Pinker? George Will and Stephen Pinker, yeah. That yeah. was fabulous. Just just fabulous. And and Rob, I think, is doing the the right thing, uh, uh, pushing back on the the theft of these words called liberalism, progressivism, words words that we should be uh, proud to accept that have been twisted into the opposite, the illiberal regressives. And uh, so that's a that's a focus of symposium, isn't it, Rob? That let's let's yeah. I, I actually I stole. I stole a line from Reagan at his 1964 time for choosing speech. He says, there's really no such thing as a left or right. There's oh, just yeah, up or right. down, up yeah. to freedom and down to, 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 to totalitarianism. Right. And I think right. that's the perspective. I'm trying to get people to think that way more. And I think if, you know, that, that you don't think there's a left versus right, but you think an up and down liberal versus a liberal. Excellent. Dr. Kelly, any final thoughts from what uh, is it? 30, 31,000 feet. What do you got? Uh, it's a little more, a um, little lower altitude. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, just, okay. There was reference uh, from one of the questions to the Krasinski affair and the intra-objectivist, uh, yeah. you know, uh, tension. And I just, yeah. I just want to appreciate what the fact that that you, Richard, and Rob, uh, both objectivists, are here debating and arguing openly right. about yeah. the question. Uh, and I don't think anyone's afraid. I'm certainly not afraid that I'm going to be denounced, uh, certainly not by the Atlas Society or by Jennifer yeah. Grossman, our CEO. Right. So um, I want to thank you for that. And um, it was thank everyone for who participated in the discussion. It was great. Well, I'm not sure this discussion would have been possible, David, without what you built up here, what kind of uh, collegiality you uh, foster and have been fostering it. TAS all these years. So I'm loving it directly more recently. So uh, yeah, isn't it nice to have respectful debates? And we definitely disagree a bit, don't we, Rob? But you know, in a broader context of objectivists, I mean, that's the cool thing about it. We're both objectivists. David is all of many of the listeners. And so it's also it's actually I think a bit more interesting to see, well, what about the subtle differences within objectivism? And since foreign policy and military strategy are applications of the philosophy you know, there's not a, when you think about it, there's not a lot of literature on this. She has the roots of war in the mid sixties. Peter Schwartz wrote on foreign policy and self-interest. John Lewis has his book. You, you, I think are more prolific on foreign policy than anybody. But one way of looking at this would be to say, well, it ain't easy because it's an application of the philosophy and not a lot of work has been done on it, but you've done a lot of the great work, spade work, Rob. So yeah. So we, we encourage people to follow Rob and subscribe to his stuff. It's fabulous. And so thank you, Rob. Uh, we're going to see you again, I know, on some other yes. Atlas, yeah. right? Right, Abby? So, yeah. So, I'm going to be trying out Clubhouse. 
Yeah, yes. so Ab Abby, you finish, finish it off and tell us uh, what's coming up. Yeah, so September 30th, I believe, um, Rob's going to be on Clubhouse, yeah. uh, which is sort of um, audio conversation app. Uh, we do send out a link to join in our newsletter. So we'll have right. updates on that in our event page and newsletter. Right. And then um, this month's book club, so on Monday, is going to be Richard's book, Where oh, yeah. Have All the Capitalists Gone. Yeah. So we'll start with that. Uh, we encourage you guys to join us. I will send links and emails out about that this week. Um, it's also on our social media and then next month, October, we'll be doing Robert's book, So Who is John Galt Anyways? I believe I had links somewhere here in Junto for that. Uh, so Who is John Galt Anyway? Um, so I don't know if you want to just give a quick, you know, I we're going to be doing that for our book club on um, October 25th. So I don't know if yeah. you want to give a quick overview before we go or? Uh, me? Uh, yeah, sure. I'd love to do that. Um, it's, it's a collection of essays covering a, a variety of things. I sort of decided that you know, uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged need, uh, deserves intensive philosophical and literary and cultural analysis in historical context. And nobody else, in the, certainly in the mainstream culture, nobody's doing that. So I said, well, I have some things to say. So I put together over a period of years 20 essays that sort of go from the philosophical aspects of Ayn Rand's philosophy as presented in Atlas Shrugged, talk about the literary aspects, talk about the historical context. I have one about you know, uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged as a work of science fiction, as a futuristic work, and how it compares to the science fiction as a as a genre, and then going, you know, finally out to the the sort of implications for today, like what what can the left and right learn? What can we learn for this for the culture wars from from Atlas Shrugged, uh, which I think is very important to keep it to show the relevance to the, what's happening currently. So it's a whole variety of, of covering Atlas Shrugged from many different angles. Awesome. And we will have links coming out for that. Everything, we're going to try and stick with Junto. We do like a lot of things about it. It has some glitches we're going to try to work out. They've been really good about answering our emails and just updating things. Um, so when we want to hear from you guys, if you guys had any issues, please send me an email. We want to make sure things get worked out. Um, other than that, what I've taken from this is that there are about six topics here that we could have talked about. You could, we could do a, a whole um, course on just foreign policy and America's wars. So maybe... We'll, maybe we'll think about that for some future sessions and bring you guys both back. Um, and yeah, stay tuned. Atlas Intellectuals will be doing our starting our capitalism course, speaking on cor of courses. So that will be with Stephen Hicks. And that's kind of what we have coming up. So stay tuned for emails and social media links for those. And let me and just add, uh, let me just add, Abby, for, in terms of uh, live appearances, uh, Professor Hicks and I will be at Nashville, October 9, yeah. right, at the yeah. Students uh, for Liberty Freer yeah. Fest, I think it's called yeah. that. Yes. Okay, and, and, and isn't it unique because it's apparently held in a baseball stadium at yes, First Horizon Stadium? Yep, First Horizon Stadium in Nashville, hopefully good weather, <laughs> and so, it'll be outdoors. <laughs> so I'm wondering whether... I'm wondering whether Hicks and I, who are going to talk about the morality of capitalism, that we're going to they're going to set up a microphone, say, on the pitcher's mound, and we will be speaking to I don't, I don't know what will be. I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. So those yeah. of you, you have to say you have to say today, today, today. I'm the wealthiest yeah. man in the world. Yeah, right. Lou Gehrig, very good reference. That's a really old reference. So kids I know, but I'm old, enough, I'm old enough to know it. Wow, very good. All right, so let's sign off. This has been another issue this has been another session of morals and markets we do it every month uh rob Trzinski, thank you so so much you were fabulous you were just great today 
Abby, thanks for organizing all this. And you had such power to look through those chats and pick the ones you wanted to. <laughs> so much. Kind of and nice. I have my own questions. It's just swirling. So you guys yeah. just might email for me. And so. finally, Dr. <laughs> Kelly, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It's great to hear. Of course. And I, I just want to say that to Abby, I'm as I'm astounded tonight <laughs> as before at how how fast you find links and post. <laughs> yeah. I know, you are you're a genius at that. Yeah. <laughs> That was, I, I can't take credit for that. Lawrence was, he was teaching me well about how to get the links up ahead of time. So. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. we'll give him the credit for that. <laughs> okay. Good night, everybody. Stay night, healthy everyone. and stay happy. We'll see you again in a month.